Hello listeners, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm slightly rusty, I haven't done this for a little while, so forgive me if I make more mistakes than I normally do, because there's a normal amount of mistakes and there might be a bigger amount of mistakes tonight, because I've done it for, I think it must be a couple of months. Anyway... You're very welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. And just before we go any further, I'm going to say that you can subscribe to Art Monthly. And there's a very good deal on at the moment where you save 10 quid a year. And it's direct debit, however, and it's £39 plus P&P, which means post and packaging. Or if you're a concession, it's £33 for post and packaging. A normal subscription, as in not direct debit, is £49. But we'd love you to subscribe. You get 10 issues a year. I know it's called Art Monthly, but it's 10 issues a year. There's a double in the summer and a double in the winter. Anyway, thank you so much. Today, I'm joined in the studio by three people. Um, Louisa Lee, writer and researcher based in London, UK. Hello, Louisa. Hello. And Laura Harris, who's a writer and PhD candidate based in Liverpool. Hello. Um, By the way, I noticed, am I right, you made a film Uh, recently or fairly recently called (laughs) Peace peaceful dome is that no I no re- i researched an exhibition at blue coat an art center in liverpool that's right and part of my phd was making a film about it being installed sort of behind the scenes so you did make it. a film then? i did make a film you did. yeah <laughs> there's a study of an art center is that being built yeah the study of an installation yeah, yeah blue coat in, Li- in liverpool very yeah. famous place been around very famous place yeah beautiful great place also joined by Jonathan P. Watts, is a writer based in norwich hello jonathan You're right. <laughs> <laughs> i love the p I was like, did you add that because there's someone else called Jonathan Watts who writes in the arts or something? Uh, there's a there's a Jonathan Watts for the Guardian who's a Chinese. Oh, that guy! And I had an invitation once to go and lecture on contemporary Chinese sexuality. Yeah. And um, and I thought, as you do, I thought perhaps I should just add the P to differentiate. Yeah. And then my nanny told me you need to use the P because it's your granddad's name. That's oh. nice. So I. What do does it, it stand for? Do we ask? Peter. That's all right. Yeah, I mean it's fine. It? Yeah, and no, I've got I've got a J in mine. And when I was an artist years ago, I started off and I was finally ended up being advised by Maureen Paley of all people right. from Interim Art, as it was called then, uh, to use um, short my name to Matt Hale, which is sort of stuck. Did you but, use the J? Well, I tried that first, so but I I found a, a bit this double barrel thing. I don't know. I'm a bit. Well, mine's not double barrelled. It's just a, no. But you know what I mean. But it was yeah. that, just that kind of overemphasis <laughs> length thing. They didn't seem right. Yeah. So, but I then found out later on there's a huge fascist in America called Matt Hale, and okay. he's just <laughs> awful. He's like Ku Klux Klan kind of guy. And he so if you Google that my name, you get him. So anyway, thank you very much, listeners, for getting, <laughs> allowing me to be indulgent. Okay, we're going to now talk to. Louisa Lee about a review. Basically, the program is about based on texts in the magazine. The magazine they're based on, uh, they they appear in um, the newly designed, by the way, September issue of Art Monthly number four two nine. So that's September twenty nineteen, um, and um, we we're very pleased with the new design. It's a uh, quiet. Subtle, some would say, too subtle, I don't know. Fraser Muggeridge Studio designed it, and it's got an old logo at the front now, which is like the one we had when we first started back in 1976. So buy a copy, have a look, and let us know what you think, people. Anyway, um, Louisa, your review is of a show at Goldsmiths, CCA Gallery, which is a relatively new gallery, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it opened two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, two years ago. And, Um, and, and, And what kind of space is it? It's a well. It's mainly for contemporary art. It was 
built out of an old swimming pool, basically. So it's, you can still see the swimming pool. Yeah, it used to be around. studios for yeah, students. Yeah, stu- you can still see took the it studios. Away. Well, well, yeah, there's some controversy <laughs> about it as well. But it's, yeah, it's sort of it's meant. It was designed by the architectural group Assemble. Yes. So. It has this sort of rough look about it, which... Yeah, that seems to be quite trendy. The ICA, where the Art Monthly is based, has got a rough rough look going on now as well. They just took all the walls away that covered up the old walls, basically. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it was my uh, reviewers of this show at Goldsmith CCA, and I'd already researched Jeff Cornelis when I was writing my PhD a while ago, but I'd hadn't, I didn't know much about him, and it's actually quite hard to find anything about him. He was a, he's passed away now, but he was a Belgian filmmaker who used to make doc, art documentaries for TV. So he'd basically started off by making a documentary about the Venice Biennale in 1966, I think it was, and. He immediately, I think, took a dislike to the art world. He had no training in art whatsoever. Um, He went there as a sort of... He doesn't like to be called a documentary maker, but he went there to document the Venice Biennale. And I've got this quote which I wrote, which he said something like, "It's um, I think my vision of the art world was clearly expressed in that film and it is obvious how I feel about the art world, remote, critical and ambiguous, to put it mildly. So he had this immediate dislike about what he saw there. But... Um, he carried on making films and these are all, well not all, but most of them are shown in the show at Goldsmiths. Um, and the interesting thing about the show is that they've tried to recreate this sort of domestic setting. Um, the show's in the basement downstairs at Goldsmiths and they've put these sort of, I don't know what you call them, but they're kind of black box Sony televisions around points. Um, and they've put sofas around each of the points and they've got a refreshment dock in the corner so you can have tea and coffee. And there's It's also sort of made it a bit like a living room as much as you might be able to without a real stage set. Yeah, exactly. Because it was all for television, which yeah. was watched, yeah. presumably, in people's houses. Yeah, so they've... I mean, it's quite nice how they've done it. It's, it's quite successful, I think. They've given you remote controls as well so you can pause and you can fast forward and you know that's quite so unusual. you can literally go through jump for the forward in a program if you want to yeah so it's really yeah. like smart telly now kind of thing exactly yeah which it, which wouldn't have been originally would it yeah though? well that's i mean i think that's one of the good things about it but also one of its downfalls because it feels a bit well for one <laughs> the show was on from over the summer and it was downstairs and there's hours and hours and hours of video, basically. For one, you wouldn't have watched all those videos at once and to actually sit down there when it's midsummer. Yeah, it was sort you mean of, it should have been a winter show. Yeah, it was. It felt it felt too demanding. How does the weather imagine to come into almost every programme we do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're in England. That's what it is. Um, so <laughs> no, that, it's true. I understand what you're saying because it's like you don't really want to watch TV in a summer's day, do you? No, and especially documentaries about art exhibitions are not i mean no. <laughs> i was gonna i would love, love you to say a bit more about the content of these films, yeah because i watched a little bit where i saw him there was a you mentioned it too um uh, there's a great quote which you, you should read out really but he documented sonspeak yeah that's s-o-n-s-b-e-e-k which is an international exhibition that happened in arnhem in the netherlands yeah and he was in, i saw him interviewing robert smithson about a piece he made in a 
quarry, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. That's where he he made he's a land mm-hmm. art piece yeah. basically, and it, I thought it was quite interesting. And he was actually not being at all ungenerous to him, and yeah, sounded yeah. like they, he quite liked it really, yeah. or you know enough to not push the guy in the water who was talking <laughs> to, which he could have done. Yeah. But what else did he actually make films about? What kind of art? Uh, I mean, he made mainly well all sorts of things really, but it was he made. Various ones about the Venice Biennale, different versions of the Venice Biennale. So big event shows. Yeah, the Documenta Forum 5, and he did ones on the artist Richard Hamilton, um, and who else did it? James Lee Byers, it's various like personalities in the art world. Yeah, because Hamilton yeah, comes up in Jonathan's yeah, review yeah. Um, so as well, so that's, that's quite it interesting. It kind of but, links in that. But so, so artists of the time. Artists of the time. Who are quite well known internationally, mm. certainly in, in, Euro, in Europe. Was he, yeah. was he mostly European-based? I mean, his budget was low at the start, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was mainly Europe, but it was sort of, I guess, you know... I mean, international, I'd say. Well, international artists, because I suppose yeah. they were coming to Europe to show, yeah. weren't they? Um, only f- there, w- there was one film which wasn't there, which I mentioned, which is in Hamilton Finley's... Yeah, which I cannot find. I hoped someone would, would have put that out no, somewhere, but it's, it's not, is it? totally banned. It's sort of... There was a big... I was reading about the dispute online, and he obviously... I mean, part of his whole video-making process was causing... was almost orchestrating this conflict between the artist and various protagonists in the videos but I think in this one he went there was already controversy around Little Sparta as a sort of destination at that point and he provoked in Hamilton fiddly too far and he basically banned the film so it's not available anywhere yeah he he did give the artist right of editing and and not doing and and it just wasn't released because because he wasn't happy with presumably the way he came out came across I think yeah I mean I don't know the specifics but I think it was, there were issues about, I mean, yeah. Someone that's else a, might... That was a rare thing, though. In the main, he, he says, doesn't he, that most artists were quite generous and relaxed and yeah, and were happy to be exposed, as it were. I think so, although I've... He, I mean, it's difficult. I think there's some contradiction about what Cornelis says that his purpose was as a filmmaker. He says that he doesn't want to just make documentaries of talking heads, he said. Right. Um, and he wanted to be act like a director. But at the same time, he he also says that he's totally objective. That he, he There's this quote about him saying, like, no, actually, I didn't, you know, I didn't orchestrate anything. I'm totally objective about how I make films. I'm just setting up the camera. I'm just recording what's going on. But clearly in the way that he kind of makes cuts and edits and juxtaposes I mean, artists. It's an impossibility, so, isn't it, to be objective? Yeah. yeah really? It's, it's, um, so I don't know. He's sort of a funny character. He's, I mean, he's funny in the way he talks. He's very deadpan, but there's a kind of humour in in his videos. I'm not sure if it's purposeful or not, but it's sort of there's some humour about it. It's sort of, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. You hear him ask questions, I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, part of it is this um, posing questions, often provocative questions, which are sort of asking about the sort of... I think he raises issues about the sort of purpose of art and the how it's made public, about the sort of underlying structures. Well, yeah, of, one, one, one of the quotes you got is, is he says, um, did the money from Sondheim, which I presume is mm. a company or an organisation, have to come from Arnhem? Oh, that, so, um, I know for Sondheim, it's a piece of work, isn't so, it? No, um, what's it called again? Sorry. 
and, 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 and that's does, the festival the kind of it was that was like another large scale yeah a bit like documental or something which isn't so big anymore but i think the money for that project came from arnheim where it was based and that that's yes. why there was lots of problems yeah and it. so he did talk about that not yeah. just about the art yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and, and but he also says at one point, does cons- does the conceptual art sell? Question mark. Yeah, yeah. Which sounds which quite is, humorous now to hear. Really, well, but. yeah, but it was also it was an issue at the time. I mean, I, he stopped making. Well, he stopped and started again, but he stopped making films around 1972, partly because he said the commercialization of the art world was sort of too much. And he made this. I think he started a sort of anti-gallery as well at the same time, um, and. Yeah, I mean, at the same, I mean, 1972 was a year that conceptual art was increasingly being shown in large-scale galleries, in institutions, and I think it was also the year that Lucy Lippard did her book, The Dematerialization of the Art Object, and I spoke, was speaking to Bruce McLean about this, and he says that's the that's the year that conceptual art was over. That was like pinpoints that as the final year. So it's interesting that at the same time he stopped making films then as well yeah yeah but and but somehow or other he came back and then he came and back, made yeah. some more in the 80s <laughs> yeah so, so uh, what what was the difference I anything i mean i don't know he's <laughs> <laughs> he was just fitter he and couldn't help himself it was just yeah he was just okay. he'd had a holiday like return yeah um <laughs> <laughs> no but you didn't spot a difference between the type of Approach of the film of the of the filming, but presumably not by the time. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know enough about the later works. But there was one at the end of the exhibition, which was it felt like this live TV broadcast. With it was all very, um, I don't know. It was, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I think it's really important myself that art, the idea of art being on TV. I don't know what what you other guys. I would love to hear from the other guys in in the studio too if they want to, but. Channel Four used to have mm. um, artists. Really, they were mostly. I think my memory, artist filmmakers' films were put on TV, so yeah, they were already yeah. making the right kind of product, as it were. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like a painters trying to make paintings on TV or, no. or, 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 doc, or documentaries. Mm. It was actual the the work. So people like John Smith and Ian Bourne. I remember them. They're people I know who yeah. they, they did. But I, it's, I don't really see it much. There is something I think um, the Jarman Award. I think is a is a occasional yeah. producer of TV stuff. But yeah, but I think that's. A, I mean, it's a point I raised in the art in the review as well. It was. It used to be more of a thing generally. I think maybe because TV was a relatively new medium as well in the sixties and seventies. It was. It was still exciting. It, they saw it as a sort of democratic way of distributing art so it was you know like it, the the fact that they were broadcasting it on normal belgian tv rather that there wasn't a specific audience for it um is something which isn't i mean as you say there was stuff done in the 80s and 90s maybe but i don't know if there's the same there are programs about art now but not in the same way they're not they're not using tv as a no. medium in i mean itself. i know it has changed because of because of the the old internet thing yeah yeah so yeah. you can you know, we can find art by people if they want to put their videos up. We can probably find them. Yeah. Some artists won't even do it though, will they? Because they don't think it's yeah the right yeah won't be watched in the right way and stuff. But to have it on mainstream TV is still different, and it is a massive audience still. I would say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, at first, at first ch- Channel Four originally was really supposed to do that kind of thing a lot yeah. more, and it just yeah. seemed to just drop it away it's and. Sort of 
stop really i don't know i don't know why it seems rather curious to me and the way he was doing it i think was sort of quite challenging still i think yeah it was the kind of the questions that he was raising i just can't imagine that being done in the same way now no which i find rather sad yeah it seems like now when um Louisa. Laura. Laura. <laughs> I knew I'd get it wrong. I said I would before we came on. I've done it's it. Confusing it's the two L's thing. Yeah. My deepest That's apologies. Uh, no, it seems like <laughs> nowadays when people uh, try and broadcast um, art, it's these exhibitions on screen that you can go to the cinema and see, which is a yeah. totally different approach. You know, it's they might linger on a canvas and you can sit in the cinema and supposedly it democratises access to paywalled exhibitions. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's uh, a sort, it's a completely different medium. Yeah. So obviously yeah. what he was doing was deliberately making moving image for a public audience, whereas now it seems like people take painting yeah. and make it still on yeah, the cinema exactly. screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, um, Very old. Yeah. Did you say that he didn't identify as an artist? Um, I don't... I don't think... He, that's a question I raised, I was kind of interested in, because he didn't, but... He's sort of he's got this quite a big ego about him, which <laughs> I feel like I feel like even though he does this sort of like oh I don't you know I'm not into the art world I'm not interested in this yeah. he's still projecting his ego and his like the, the whole director image and this kind of orchestrating things is a sort of artist type yeah. approach. But is there a kind of um, is there a disdain that you feel from him that he has towards art and then yeah. and then in that case is there a kind of willful sat is there satire taking place? Um, I felt I'm again. I'm. I felt like there was, like, definitely when I've watched videos that felt there's like moments when you see Joseph Kasuf like kind of there in sunglasses, and then it skips to Lawrence Weiner, and it feels like Lawrence Weiner is making fun of Joseph Kasuf, and it's sort of well, which that's is quite likely anyway. <laughs> and um, but it does, yeah. It definitely feels like that. Again, I don't know. I like. Hmm. I'm not sure how purposeful it is, or if the artists kind of do that by themselves. Um, yes, just by just by being by, being themselves. Because yeah. them, yeah. I, I was thinking about that, um, you know, the, the the couple of recent films that's sort of quite easily satirised the contemporary art world, like the squ- is it the, the square, square? Yeah. and the one with Jake Gyllenhaal, um, oh, which I can't remember the name of right yeah. now, but. Um, they're kind of easy targets yeah. in, in yeah, yeah. a way, and there's not. I get you get the sense that they're only thinly written, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The if he wasn't trying to satirise the art world, what uh, do you think kept taking him back to a topic that he found so ridiculous that he felt remote and critical? <laughs> well, that's to what I think. That's what I was wondering. Um, keep going back. And for a man not interested, he did an awful lot of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's yeah, it's a good. Was question. it two hundred he did or something? Yeah, two hundred. Yeah, he did two hundred in total. It was yeah, it was he was. That shows a certain interest, dedication. <laughs> yeah. Well, he obviously worked out he was doing something well, I think, and he had a niche sort yeah. of. I presume he must have been making some money. The TV must have yeah. been paying him for it. Yeah, I presume so. he got a job to a degree. Yeah. it was just a cash cow for him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Maybe want to say quite secret. that, but. <laughs> Yeah, artists getting paid. Let's call him an artist and be pleased that he got paid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's that? Shall we try moving on slightly, just because um, of time? Um, and I'm going to say the right name. It's Laura Harris yes. has written a review as well. And that's um, actually it's a report. It's not a review yeah. um, because it, it's about issues. And, and it's called Art and Museum Transparency. Um, 
Would you like it to is. tell us w- what it's about? Yeah, sure. Well, it links quite nicely, actually, with uh, what Louise was just talking about in terms of a sort of criticality towards the art world and the structures of it, because I'm writing about collective action um, by art workers trying to make the arts a fairer place of work. And actually, Goldsmith's CCA was a real hotspot for that um, when it opened last year. Um, So there were protests about cleaners at the gallery. It was actually cleaners across the whole of the university. But they rallied under the protest, who keeps the cube white? Which is a very uh, provocative question, and it's one I return to in my PhD. Was there, what was the result of that, by the way? Do you know? Um, I mean, they were asking for them to be paid more. They were asking presumably. them to be brought back in house. Um, okay, right. I think it was to do with outsourcing. Yeah. Um, and then the sort of conditions that proliferate in outsourced. Yeah, because um, that, that's the theme of your of your piece. That yeah, yeah. So outsourcing is incredibly proliferate in the art world, especially in the kind of support personnel that we rely on in order to go to the galleries every day. But nonetheless, these are staff, these are workers, these are labourers who are not given cultural capital, who are not recognised um, as the producers of the art world, I suppose. So they're outsourced. Um, they're freelance, they live very precarious lives. This is true, of course, as well, of artists and of institutional workers. Um, perhaps not quite to the same degree, though, of the people that do actually clean the galleries, the people that build the galleries, the people that keep them, well, the security guards and that sort of thing. Um, so I, my, my report is about um, certain particular struggles to try and make the art world a little bit fairer. Um, you mentioned outsourcing. That's because I uh, talk about PCS Culture Group's current struggle, which is against the National Gallery. PCS is a um, uh, a union that works with public sector uh, galleries, national galleries. Uh, so, so people can be members. Yeah, people like, can be as members. A union. Uh, yeah, it's a normal union. Yeah. Um, and the Culture Group does a lot of good work. They've recently agitated at Tate um, because the. Tate workers were given um, pay rises below inflation for years and years, uh, and PCS just agitated. Uh, well, they basically threatened strike, and they got a pay rise to make up for a bit of that, which is great. So that that's really something. Yeah, know. yeah. Um, so it just proves that unions work. Even yeah, and, and that the money is there. And that the money is there, exactly. I think there's a big discourse of art institutions not having enough money, and that's true. But there's a payoff, I think, with our institutions and money where brand damage is something that's worth paying to avoid. Yeah, well, Tate know quite a lot about that, don't they? Tate do know quite a lot about that. Um, so, But they're a very big institution who would possibly have money which they could move around more. Yeah. And, and later on, maybe we could talk about the difference that may have the size of where yeah. people are working but the you, the national gallery and the guggenheim you mentioned as well yeah these are big places with these are big places and these are where the headline struggles happen so guggenheim um new york unionized for the first time in that institution's history this year um and that was after the new museum in new york unionized for the first time uh, actually i don't know if it's the first time in the new museum but they unionized in january um, and in both cases, the institution, Guggenheim and New Museum, went out of their way to union bust, basically, to try and stop this happening. So uh, at the Guggenheim, the director, Richard Armstrong, emailed round, basically uh, ridiculing the idea, ostensibly. And the New Museum went as far as hiring um, a company, I think Kentucky-based company, um, that sell themselves as 
union avoidance consultants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, who sits in a boardroom and think that's a good idea? But anyway. It's a bit obvious, isn't it? It's a bit obvious. Uh, I don't know how long the new museum had them <laughs> advising for, because obviously that's very bad for their brand. Um, but that brings up something which is the difference between the sort of front stage politics of these institutions and the backstage uh, labour relations. So New Museum is a very respectable gallery that does a lot of political, hyper-political work and, you know, it's supposed to be a critical space for conversation. And yet it's the very same institution that hires uni avoidance consultants. And I think that's sort of endemic to the arts. Well, there's but, a big contradiction of, of, of reality and yeah. apparent belief yeah. being put out exactly and it's not something um that sort of headlined i don't think in the arts enough that uh yeah we might be a space that sort of makes critical conversations happen but if you're a cleaner it doesn't matter if you're cleaning a gallery or an office if you're outsourced you don't know how you're going to pay your rent next month or whatever it's exactly the same as a workplace any other workplace richard armstrong said something about the the workforce should appreciate the unique character of their workplace as if somehow that was they were not the same as other places yeah. in the world. Yeah. And therefore they should be not worried about the fact that they... No. I mean... <laughs> it is so naive, really. It's very naive. On the page, isn't it? Very naive, yeah. Um, those were in emails that were published by the New York Times. I don't think he intended them to go public. No, more for women. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's a very prevalent myth that goes around in the arts, that we're lucky uh, if we get the opportunity to work in the arts, which... You know, it may be true on many different levels, but again, uh, when it comes to capital and labour relations, uh, it's work, it's labour. Um, so, yeah, this idea of the uniqueness is, is really popular, um, and I think it's what contributes to uh, the acceptance of uh, limited pay, um, the lack of unions across the industry. Um, and also, yeah, it's not really commonly spoken about. You know, you don't go to the private view and complain about your pay packet. Um, so yeah and I think that's because we sort of work within this this myth uh, that it's unique um, and I wrote this article to try and sort of celebrate the collective worker-led projects that are trying to de demystify that essentially um, yeah so I've mentioned some of the uh, American ones uh, and Art Museum Transparency is taken from a survey which you might be familiar with has been doing the rounds on Art Twitter and uh this morning when I checked, it had 3,141 entries. So it's doing, it's doing really well. And it's uh, art white workers of all stripes, from art handlers to directors, and they're reporting on their salary, their conditions, mm. um, things like that. So it's a way of sort of making it more transparent. So they literally, in their tweets, putting... No, it's a no. Google Docs um, so it's a survey that's being collected, the yeah. information being collected, mm -hmm. and it will be made public it is public it i is mean public. it is public. so you can see where someone works yes. and what they get you can choose how much you divulge yeah, i filled into something on uh, quite vaguely online <laughs> somewhere recently at work about what i earned it might have i can't that. remember though i yeah. couldn't i was trying to remember whether it actually asked me where i work i have yeah. a funny feeling it did but i don't know why i didn't go oh it gives you a bit of leeway so you can just say what place it's in you can say how big the institution is if you don't want to divulge enough because it is risky well, I think that, that was one of the reasons I was going to say people don't always talk yeah. about it, is perhaps because it's if risky. they like their job, especially as well, yeah. they don't want to lose it. And, and if they're freelance, then there's no security. Um, so if you are seen as an agitator and, and you're working in these conditions, 
you're uh, off. You're, you're off. Yeah, yeah there's, no, there's no weight. It's just Yeah. I mean, the people behind Art and Museum Transparency, one of them is uh, Michelle Fisher. Um, and the other, the rest of the team that do really good work on Twitter, um, talking about these kind of things, uh, have all chosen to remain anonymous. Right. Just say what. So people want, listening want to find that. What, 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 uh, where should they go? So you go to Art and Museum Transparency on Twitter. It's Art Plus Museum Transparency, um, and right. they have a link in their bio. And they're also doing um, a spreadsheet on unpaid internships uh, because Michelle Fisher, who who started the initial spreadsheet said the most shocking thing was how many people in the salary column put zero um so you know it's incredible i it mean makes everyone them knows. A volunteer intern volunteer intern exactly and they're doing a lot of great work on twitter where if an institution advertises a role um that's voluntary <laughs> they uh they highlight that and tweet it and say you know why are you doing this you need to justify yourself yeah so that's really and it's being successful those roles are being taken down or uh, or made paid i mean there are i, I mean my sister was a, a, a worked at the gallery mm. unpaid i mean she, yeah. she did it because she moved to a city she wanted to get to, know people. Get to know people she, she yeah. likes the art so she went to the gallery and then and she was working long hours yeah it's totally unpaid. Time, yeah and i was shocked i'm not naming the gallery because i don't think i'm well, quite sure if i want to or not but true of most i think it's not uncommon no, yeah. at all and it sounds great because you think oh we're volunteering and you know, she didn't have a job at the time mm-hmm. and she had the time. But And you think, well, that's fine. But if the institution's relying yeah. on this, yeah. you're yeah. setting a precedent. That, well, so this what happens exactly, when they don't, can't do yeah. it anymore? It's exactly the case that I'm trying to make is that without those people sitting in those galleries, the exhibitions would be closed. You couldn't even see them. So it doesn't matter how much work the curator does. If that person isn't sitting there, yeah. then it matters. And Front of House Museums is an English, institu- uh, English organisation doing a lot of work to make the conditions of those front of house workers, which I suppose includes volunteers, um, sort of more visible. So they, they did a poll and they found 58% of front-of-house workers feel undervalued. And in the recent heat wave, uh, they did a Twitter poll, 58% of respondents had uniforms unsuitable to the extreme weather. So these are pretty rubbish places to work. They can be, yeah. and they can be yeah. completely unpaid. What, what's the National Gallery story? Because that, that's quite... with, with a. That's outsourcing, yeah. isn't it? You've not talked about that, have you? I haven't missed it. Uh, no. no, so National Gallery uh, have a history of um, clashes with the union. Uh, the 2015 was, was the most famous. I think they did an 100-day strike action, um, which was sort of headline news, and it was really great. Uh, and it was quite a creative protest as well. They did things like organised um, alternative exhibitions on the street and that sort of thing. So it was very engaging. And the Front of house staff there were gallery invigilators there were being outsourced to Securitas. They are outsourced to Securitas now. And in June, um, they were given, they were, on a Wednesday, they were told that the conditions of their contract were changing and they had to decide by Friday whether to accept those conditions or not, basically. So they had one full day, I suppose, to decide uh, the future of their. Or to organise something to stop it happening. Exactly. Which, did they do that? Did they try and stop it? So they did try to stop it, yeah. PCS uh, Culture Group got involved and they uh, called the tactics coerce, uh, bullying tactics, which it is. It's a, it's a strategy. You know, you give someone one day and they're going to accept those conditions, which are worse than the conditions previous, which weren't great because they're already outsourced. To yeah, and I think, I think they were involved on the earlier. Yes. And they were worried that what is happening... Would, now yeah. would happen if they went to Securitas, and, yeah. they, and it is. Yeah, so it's quite obvious uh, that this would be what happens when you outsource 
um, staff in any industry, the arts is no different. Yeah. Um, well, there was a key thing where, uh, if I understand it right, the people, say, who are in the galleries, who are invigilating, yeah. were, were also, they would talk to the public and they would yeah. be able and allowed to do that about and talk about the art mm-hmm. as well. And they would have a chair to sit on as well and they would have a certain area that they would cover. The new change is, is to stop that, isn't it, I think? I'm not entirely sure the content of the of the change, but I wouldn't be surprised. But it involves them also not not even being able to not even necessarily working at the National Gallery anymore. Uh, well, a lot of these outsourced um, places work across uh, sort of different uh, institutions, which, which these original staff didn't do. They took a job at the National yeah, Gallery. Yeah, I mean, if it was in house, it was because in-house. they wanted to be in the National Gallery. Yeah, or maybe they had caring commitments. They had to get you know pick up the kids after school or whatever it was but now um when you work in an outsourced uh, institution you have very changeable and uh, and also that is very useful for union busting so at say the british museum for example um if the workers were um uh, collectivizing not necessarily unionizing because that's quite hard uh, when you're outsourced um then the gallery can just the employer can just move you around um, so yeah, it's it's all quite uh, clever. But there are, and I list in my article, um, projects that are trying to make the art world a bit fairer, a bit better. And that's that's what I wanted to highlight. I wanted to highlight the good work that people are doing. Oh golly, there's also there's also um, an artist-led space w- 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 thing. You mentioned the fact that it doesn't only affect you know some of these things. Yeah, do happen also in quite different institutions and that's yeah. a very different kind of institution artist-led space but it was interesting that you put put that I mean yeah. I wasn't surprised to see it there but then it yeah. hadn't occurred to me that we would that that <laughs> should be also you know trying to yeah. they should be doing right things too or being yeah. enabled to is what I would say because often the funding doesn't enable lots mm. of things yeah so I wanted to highlight two um sort of collective action uh, groups that are working outside of the traditional institution. One of them is 12O Collective and their back-end project, which is um, is going around the country at the moment. I attended the meeting in Liverpool. They've also had Wakefield, uh, Glasgow and London. Um, and what they're trying to do is co-author a sort of code of practice for artist-led spaces because, you know, it's their, it's their great asset that artist-led spaces aren't institutionalised, but it can also be a massive problem if there's no structure for making sure people aren't being bullied or left out or, mm. you know, they can be cliquey places. They can, they can be riddled with all sorts of uh, structures of inequality. So 12O Collective are trying to write this code of contact about how to make them more transparent and fair. Um, and I think it will be the case that uh, artist-led spaces can then sign up to that code of contact and people, you know, will know that this is how... We operate here. Yeah, so an artist approaching them, say, or, or wanting to work with them or yeah, show exactly. them, will know there's a certain understanding that they yeah. have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I think is great. Yeah. Um, and then there's Femtech Nottingham, which is um, a project started by someone called Effie Hall, and she did a lot of work into female gallery technicians uh, who are hugely under underrepresented. And so what they do is Femtech uh, are a group of artists and techs and curators that come together and they skill share. And they sort of advocate for gender equality in the in the technical side of art galleries. So increase the number of women. Yeah, and, and also and, also, and pay equality and yep. all, if there is any. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and yeah, skill up women um, yeah. or or anyone that isn't a man, I suppose, that wants to get into <laughs> get get into tech work because um, it's very male dominated. So yeah, they do skill shares and they're based uh, in Nottingham. 
but they're on Instagram um, at Fentech Nottingham. If anyone wants to check them out. Yeah, I mean, presumably people could join from and not be in Nottingham. They could. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see a national network of people, ad, uh, yeah. you know, gender equality. And I was interested, I think you said something about how basically when there's freelance work mm. like that, it does instigate competition. Yeah. So it's, it's actually, it's, it's almost like because of that, they are fighting against each other for work. Yeah, that's basically. a horrible thing, isn't it? When these conditions proliferate, it sort of outsources onto the individual this competitive element. And these yeah. people, like, we all operate in the art world. These people are likely your friends. That's how the art world works. They're your contacts, but they're also your friends. Uh, and you don't want to be competing with them. But uh, you have to enter into that mentality, I suppose, um, which is unfortunate. So Femtech Nottingham, yeah, they are really based on this anti-competition idea. Yeah. I wonder if that could be expanded to artists just as in art practice because yeah. in, in a way we're all competing, aren't we? Exactly. And, I mean, a lot, and obviously yeah. if, you, if you really are a fairly full-time artist, you are probably freelance because that's yeah. more self-employed. As, and then it's, but you, you are all going for, how you get around that? I mean, I, there was obviously wages paid in some countries. Like, was it Holland, did it? Yeah. Where they all got money, basically. Mm -hmm. If you were an artist, you got state funding. But in the end, it kind of, I don't know whether it, it didn't last, I know that, in the end. Yeah. It went a long time, but in the end, I'm not quite sure what it did to the the way people were. Like, yeah. did they exhibit at all anymore? Or, you know, I don't know whether it, there's a certain, it's really difficult because a bit of energised competition can you imagine would be of some value i just think yeah well, but when there's uh diminishing resources um a lot of these artists would be super critical of the idea of competing over diminishing resources not only because it in a sense justifies taking away resources um so yeah i'd be really interested to know how um when we conceive of artists as workers what does collective action look like how do you withdraw your labor in order to agitate for yeah. uh, less competition for better pay for i mean artists have withdrawn pay. their they were going to do shows and they didn't do a yeah. show. Um, was it? I'm going to forget Chisholm where. Chisholm did a thing like yeah, that. Yeah, it was that. But it also happened at the, someone like the portrait camera. Someone, someone was, no, somebody big was going to have a show. And they wouldn't, well. and they wouldn't do it because of what, what the gallery was sponsored by, I think. It was more to do with sponsors. Whitney. Sorry. Yeah, the Whitney recently because of the tear gas controversy yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big area, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, you know, these things happen individually. These galleries do these things and they get a lot of column inches and, and kudos for, for doing them. But uh, nonetheless, that still uh, takes the gumption of the individual artist. But, you know, these projects I talk about show that actually coming together is a super powerful thing to do. Yeah. So I wonder how we can organise across yeah. the art world and rethink who is the art world because it's also the cleaners. It's also yeah. Well, any ideas else. people have, you're yeah. welcome to write in <laughs> Back of a, a letter to Art Monthly <laughs> and we will... Almost certainly publish it. Um, let's talk about collectives and things. J Jonathan, um, because of time again, we'll, we'll move along a bit. You did um, a, a review of two things. Um, one was uh, a show called New Order Art, comma, Product, comma, Image, 1976 to 1995, which was at Spruth Margers in London um, in the summer. Well, it's just... It's still on, isn't it, actually? It's a, what day are we? It's just about still on. Yeah, 14th 14, September. Yeah. And um, also Bank... Um, at Piper Keys, their show called Summer, yep. S-U-M-M-A. Um, I mean, they're a collective artist group, or were, I should you say, probably, I don't know. Who, Piper Keys? No, no, Bank. Bank, oh yeah. Piper Bank, Keys, yeah. yes. You, but tell, us, tell us about the two shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. In you know, any order you like, you wrote it about okay. Spruce first, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, so, uh, 
the interesting thing was that these two shows occurred more or less um, at the same time. Um, Michael Bracewell's show at Spook Maggers appears to be a kind of roll call of YBA artists of sort of slightly earlier work. Um, and then, as you say, Matt Bank um, functioned as a collective, sort of changed shape at particular times. There are more or less members. Um, um, but they also kind of had this kind of method of um, auto-context making because they would um, show their own work in group exhibitions where they invited other artists to take place. And they're also kind of perennially um, just deeply antagonistic towards the contemporary art um, status quo. So in a way you have these kind of two poles. That was kind of, That was the interesting proposition that you have on the one hand this kind of seeming kind of revisitation of the YBAs um, at a commercial gallery, and then you have um, a kind of collective model of art production through through bank um, in an artist-led space, which, P- is, which is Piper yeah. Keys. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a kind of... I mean, I guess the basic idea was that it was a comparative review. Um, YBAs obviously are incredibly famous, um, and the notion of celebrity is kind of implicit in... in the the branding of the YBA um but bank too have had a really kind of tremendous influence um on a generation of artists you know so members of bank continue to teach um and they also participate in the culture in a certain level you know you'll see bank members at um openings um so yeah I was interested in just kind of bringing them together see what happens um i guess like uh, the risk of doing a thing like this within the word count is that you maybe flatten the complexity of each of the shows um, in favour of trying to think about establishing a thesis or an idea that runs between them. And it might also be disingenuous to the curators um, of the shows because obviously they presumably they never intended for there to be a dialogue between those exhibitions. Sure, sure. Um, um, so yeah, as I've already suggested, they take place in very different kind of sh- show, uh, very different kinds of spaces. Spruit Magas is is a kind of you know global blue chip art gallery. Piper Keys is an artist led space that's in Raven Row in Shoreditch, um, and in a way, they're the kinds of spaces we might expect to see those kinds of works. Um, Raven Row is in Shoreditch, um, and it's not really so far from where Bank had operated. So they had Gallery Poo Poo in. Um, Underwood Street and just up um, the road, an old, old street roundabout. Wasn't yeah, it? exactly yeah, yeah. in Hoxton, yeah. and they had Curtain Road, and they they did a show in the T Building um, in this area that's known today as Silicon Roundabout or Silicon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, much changed, much changed. <laughs> um, so um, you know, the 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 show at, Ra- at Piper Keys is also the kind of show, an archival show to some extent, the kind of show that Raven Row might have done, um, and so there's this really kind of compelling activation of a kind of geography of artist-led activity in that area from the early 90s. Um, I mean, the other thing about this that I find particularly interesting is that, you know, all these people, particularly banks, you know, they're all very much still alive and are around. And and um, exhibit as individual artists. And exhibit as individual quite, artists. Quite yeah. And so, you know, perhaps the 1980s, you know, is as this period that's been kind of revisited in 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 academic PhD contexts of recent, so there's a sort of feeling that the '90s is coming round again. Yeah, and, it was interesting because I didn't, I wasn't really aware of that. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly is on the on the high street and and kind of you know style wise and kind of culturally. 
Um, and I find it very interesting that, you know, someone I get, you know, I was born in 86, but like that I come along and, and sort of revisit this history as an outsider, as a non-participant, whilst all these people are still alive and can tell the stories. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, not, it's not, this so, history's not over in no, a way. No, no. Um, so anyway, so the, um, yeah, so the, 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 um, the show at Spook Magazine was curated by Michael Bracewell. Um, he, Michael primarily is, um, he's a writer on art and music, um, but he's also curated exhibitions in the past and he co-curated what I think is one of the kind of great, well, I, just one of the best exhibitions or, or maybe the most influential exhibitions on me that I've seen, which is The Dark Monarch. Um, and his writings on art were, were collected and published by Riding House um, a few years ago. Um, uh, but there's artists in the show like like Richard Hamilton, though. Yeah, so it's so, not it's not just YBA. Well, is yeah, it? well, that's I think that's the point. So, so, so the like ostensibly it seems to be a show of YBAs, and um, but actually, um, and much of that kind of YBA work is um, it's video from the kind of early to mid nineties, and it's very rough. Um, but there are also, as you say, works by Hamilton and um, also Peter Saville. Um, and this great work from um, that uh, Olivia Richon and Karen Noor did together of the, the pictures of punks in the, the subways just not far from here, near um, Waterloo um, Bridge. Um, but those artists generally fall outside of a kind of YBA lineage. Um, so, I mean, the title in itself is, is, is quite kind of long and there's a lot happening in it. Um, the New Order is that's in the title is kind of is is quite um obviously an allusion to to new order and is the link to peter saville um uh the earliest work in the show in that range is 1976 which is a, a work of hamilton's which was um a study that he did for um a, a hi-fi for a japanese company called lux which was called the lux 50 um and um the latest work the, the kind of 1995 there are two works i think that date from 95 um samuel taylor johnson and angus fairhurst's works but um there's also this kind of connection in the press release where bracewell tries to kind of activate um 76 i mean 75 is regarded as a kind of date where punk kind of you know emerges but 76 is this famous television appearance for bill grundy um so I was kind of interested in then thinking about like what also happens in 1995. You know, there's new which, which is when Bank are. Yeah, it's when Zombie Golf takes place. Um, it's also, I mean, I, I will talk about this in a moment if, if I have time, but like it's also this date of an essay by John Roberts where he tries to discuss this idea of a kind of strategic philistinism that, that Bank use. And in a way, that was the kind of link to try and to transition from the new order to talk about the the um the piper keys show um but um because irony was an issue wasn't it there was it the ybas were more ironic and then the bank were not is that is that fair um well what he, what what robert suggests i mean what robert suggests is um and he also co-authored something with dave beach and then he left review on this which is sort of impenetrable <laughs> um but what robert suggests is that there is a kind of strategic stupidity um that's a kind of that's con that's constructed through discourse that shifts in opposition to whatever seems to be the kind of status quo so it's um mercurial it just ch it changes and that, that's and it's, bank's approach that's bank's approach whereas, so whereas sarah lucas's approach as a yba for instance would not be seen that way um 
Well, it's not, I guess historically it's not how it's been f framed, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, but um, um, so yeah, so as I say, Peter Saville is, is kind of quite important in this work. So Saville, as many listeners I'm sure will know, um, co-founded Factory Records in Manchester in 1978. Um, and he's very influenced by, as a kind, I guess you might call it a post-punk aesthetic, but he's very influenced by Bauhaus and um, industrial design and working across different fields. Um, and um, in this exhibition that Bracewell puts together is the record sleeve for Blue Monday, the 12-inch, which is like the greatest... Um, selling record 12-inch single of all time. Um, and what Bracewell kind of says about this is that actually um, Saville, Saville perhaps is even more interesting than what an artist is doing because he works fluidly between media. He's not afraid of some idea of like um, the way that fantasy and desire is projected into the, the, the product. Um, and makes use of this kind of ubiquitous means of distribution, which is the record sleeve. You know, there are millions and millions of these things sold, which has a connection to your to Cornelis as a, you know television as a as a mass medium. Um, but it's kind of strange, and I sort of say that it's a bit perverse because you go into the gallery space and you and on the second floor is is the Blue Monday twelve inch sleeve in a plinth, you know, under a plastic case. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of um, in, it's, in what just one of them. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, this thing that it's a contradiction. It's well, it's perverse, I guess, because he could have just had it presumably just ca casually yeah. in a pile of them or something, couldn't yeah, he? Yeah. He didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there was some connection between Richard Hamilton's toaster paint, which is a print, I think, or a series of prints, isn't it, of a, yeah. a brawn toaster. And that influenced Saville? As, yeah, as I mean, the, uh, Hamilton, uh, Saville, Saville, um, yeah, Saville is, is very influenced by, by Hamilton. His, his, his interest in products. And Hamilton, the toaster, yeah, he took the brawn, I don't remember the model, but he put his own name on the brawn uh, toaster, Hamilton. And, you know, for instance, like, there was a survey in, I think, 70... Oh, I can't remember, maybe 84 or 78 or something of Hamilton's. And the catalogue had a kind of um, foil print of the toaster on the front. And, you know, a bit like the White, the Beatles White Album, which Hamilton did. Um, you know, he, what Hamilton said about this Tate catalogue cover of the toaster is that this this is an artwork in and of itself. You buy the catalogue and you get this thing, which, you know... And obviously, this you know, this is this thing about you know Blue Monday under a, under a, on a plinth is is a question of scarcity and kind of you know the constructed economy of scarcity and value. Um, but um, yeah, um, I, I, I my problem sorry. really in a way. I mean, I I really respect Bracewell. I think he's I mean he's a wonderful writer. Um, but you know, there's this kind of um, what he does in this show is a kind of uh, reiteration of, I call it an art critical PR line, but he basically reiterates this line that Neville Wakefield um, argues when the, there's this, this famous show, Brilliant, um, which is a kind of showcase of the YBA that's state-sponsored, goes to the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, he makes this argument that... that, that they are like punks, that they're the heirs to, um, you know, situationist tactics. And, but, you know, this is, this is art that's state-sponsored. State and Bracewell reiterates this line as well. And what he says about, what he says about the, 
the kind of YBA work that's on display, which is really, you know, very interesting work. Um, I can give you a li- some examples here of what's there. There's um, Angus Fairhurst, a cheap and ill-fitting gorilla suit that's shot on a kind of locked-off stationary camera on like a Betamax video where he is in this kind of spare loft space and he's shaking off a a, a kind of comedic um, gorilla suit. Um, There's a Gary Hume work, again, locked-off camera, Mia's King Canute, where he's in a bathtub smoking a cigarette. Um, There's a very funny work of Hearst and Fairhursts called A Couple of Cannibals Eating a Clown, Aisha Coco. You know, which is is in you know straight in the the line of kind of Dudley Moore and Peter um, Cook, um, and what else is there? There's Sam Taylor Johnson, Brontosaurus, and Julian Waring dancing in in Peckham. Um, but what 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 Bracewell says is that you know in the same way that in '76 punks were able to kind of um, reinvent themselves and and kind of become who they really are, that in '95 there is this moment in YBA art where they are liberated to to be who they are um and that somehow this this these works evidence um a kind of disinterest in the kind of slick product um a kind of packaged parcel but you know um so was he putting up a, a, an oppositional situation within the gallery basically so he had the because that was the upstairs was more the slick yeah, thing, always about yeah, it. Yeah, and they were seemingly being put in as an example of the opposite. Yeah, there's this suggestion that in '95, but, but they're not really. Well, there's a suggestion that in '95 everything changes. You know, so you're so you're going okay. Well, what changes in '90? Well, I mean, most of them by then are rich and you know are famous, are celebrities in their own right. Um, um. And like I said, you know, I, you know, seventy six to ninety five is a really big period of time yeah, for a, a very small show. You know, so there's, I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of show that a writer would curate, I think, because there's a thesis that's worked out there that's very compelling. And I've read the thesis; it's, it's in an essay that he di- he did for a Peter Savile book for J.P. Ringier a few years ago. It's a compelling thesis, but I don't know that it translates to an exhibition. It feels very unresolved. I mean, the Karen Noor and the Olivia Richon work, um, uh, you know, is is a kind of, is an illusion. I mean, it's great work and, and you know, but it's an illusion to this kind of moment of subculture, this moment of what Peter York would call style wars, um, of this separation between appearance um, and essence, if you like. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in in the show that it actually kind of doesn't maybe feel so resolved but that's okay i mean it's a good gig for bracewell yeah and then there's the bank yeah show sorry as yeah well. okay so no 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 so it's fine the, but, no, no, i mean some people won't know banks work but obviously okay sure but, but yeah. they, they were as you did say earlier very critical in writing in, in newspapers they used to create with weird headlines and they used to do fax backs to yeah to, to, to galleries criticizing what they how they presented their yeah Shows and some of that's in the show in um, Piper Keys, isn't it? Well, the facts back stuff isn't. No, but, but um, the, the newspaper. Yeah, the what they called the, the, what they called bank public. Um, I think they were called bag, bank public information sheets. Uh, sheets. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the work. So, as I said, I, I sort of used the John Roberts thing as a kind of glue, you know, as a as a transition to move into bank. And uh, yeah, ninety five is zombie golf, and. Um, yeah, the show at Piper Keys is a restaging. Again, I mean, very complex, right? Re- 
if you restage a show, that's already in and of its of itself complex. But that it's a restaging of an exhibition um, that took place in 1999, I think it was, um, uh, East International, which was an annual open selection exhibition that Linda Morris was the director of in Norwich. Um, and Linda Morris had this idea of like the inter- what she called the international provincial, um, and she had this kind of agenda really to think about art production outside of the imperial city of London. Um, and so Bank made this work where they really kind of um, they called it the group therapy painting. So as a group, they took it in turns to apply marks to make these kind of um, pa- well, what are they? They're kind of collage or a collision of Rothko meets Lowry. So you have these kind of swirling colour fields and then these Lowry-esque figures. And and then they had their public information sheets. So they had some of those that were shown at East originally and and then I think there were a couple of more as well. Um, And... I, you know, the, 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 it's, they look very tasteful. They, you know, in, in that beautiful gallery at Raven Row, big, you know, big canvases. Yeah. You know, they look, they look. But, but apparently they've got nothing in the Tate archive at all. Well, in, they, in the Tate, Tate collection, I mean. Yeah. And there's some statement that says that it's about time they did or something. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, that's what they suggest. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think like, you know, there have been times where bank in, in different forms, you know, have shown with commercial galleries and, Definitely. and, um, I think there's an interesting point to take here about this kind of fierce antagonism that they've always courted. Yeah, there's this idea that, like, um, you know, that perhaps perhaps they've just been unrelentingly um, antagonistic and have been marginalised or shut out to some extent from a kind I of... Do think um, that, I do think that did happen to them in the early 2000s. They seem to have individually built themselves up and had shows, but, um, yeah. Guys... Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm afraid our hour is one minute <laughs> nearly gone. We've, we've been talking away, and I hope you've been listening happily at home or wherever you are, in your car, on your bicycle, wherever it may be. <laughs> and I hope you come back to Art Monthly again for the next show. We're on again in a month's time. And um, thank you to my guests and to you for listening. Um, and good night. Good night.